Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We're going to look at the book of Deuteronomy, Mike, the fifth book of the Bible, an unusual title for a book. I mean, what does the, the title of the book mean? The title Deuteronomy comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it literally means a second law. Uh, and this is because at the time it was seen as a as a second reading of the law. It was actually due to a mistranslation that someone did. So it, it's not a brilliant title, really. It's really a retelling or recapping of the law, applying it for the new situation that God's people were about to enter in moving into the promised land. So to call it a second law, which is what Deuteronomy means, almost sounds like, oh, yeah, we had that one. This is another one now. So what we'll find in this book is actually quite a recapping of the story so far, but with some tweaks to apply it for life in the promised land. So let's have a look at the book, which is what, 34 chapters altogether, just kind of from above, a bird's eye view, if you like. What are the kind of main things that are coming our way? This book is really written in the format of what's called a covenant renewal document. Now, I know that sounds a bit of a mouthful, mm. <laughs> but in the ancient world, when an agreement was made between two nations or two kings, they made a covenant, a binding agreement, and they wrote that up in a document, a bit like a treaty would be today. And it had certain elements to it. And actually, the book of Deuteronomy follows those elements perfectly. So it starts with a sort of general introduction, followed by a historical account of how did we get to this point, which is exactly what will happen, followed by the requirements for operating within this covenant together and ending with that treaty being ratified or agreed together. Now, actually, that's exactly what we get here in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first four chapters are really a summary of the story so far. Then 4 to 26 are the requirements of that covenant. And 27 to 30 is where it's ratified, where it's sealed, ready for going into the promised land. Just remind us again of where we are what, and, and, you know, geographically and in terms of our timeline. In terms of our timeline, what we have seen in some previous episodes is that God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would fill the whole earth. He had a son called Isaac, who had a son called Jacob, who had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Joseph, who ended up in Egypt and was able to take God's people there to avoid a famine. A long time passed, nearly 300 years, a change of dynasty led to the descendants of Abraham being enslaved. God raised up a man called Moses who freed them, who led them out of Egypt. At the festival of Passover, across the Red Sea, went down to Mount Sinai where God gave them his law and made Israel his people, a covenant now not just with an individual, but with a nation. They set off for the land that God had promised all those years back to Abraham. 
but on the way began to grumble and distrust God and so spent 38 years wandering in the wilderness, which we read of particularly in the book of Numbers. At the end of that period, when all those adults aged over 20 had died out and only the younger generation was there who'd grown up, a new generation for a fresh beginning, they made their way to the promised land, passing to the east of the Dead Sea, through Edom, then through Moab. And it's there on the very edge of entering the promised land that this covenant is renewed with God's people. So imagine, as it were, you're up on the hill looking across the River Jordan to the promised land, and now it's time to say, come on, guys, let's reaffirm this commitment we have with God and God with us, but let's also go through it again and clarify it for life that we're going to be living now, not as wandering nomads, but as settled farmers. You've just beautifully summed it up in a couple of minutes. What, you know, why do we need 34 chapters to go over things and review things? <laughs> because people forget. <laughs> and that is literally what this is all about. So those first four chapters are really all about God saying, remember what I've done for you as a people. Now, remember, there's a new generation here. So they do need reminding of what God has done, but what God did for their ancestors, God has also done for them. So that's really important. But also what what really comes out in this book, I think, is, look, you're about to enter a new phase of life where it would be very easy to settle and get comfortable. You're no longer facing the hardships of slavery in Egypt. You're not facing the hardships of life wandering through the desert. You're going to become settled people with your own home and your own farm and your own income. And we all know the danger that that can bring. It's actually a danger that's addressed in the book of Deuteronomy. And that is the danger of complacency when life gets comfortable. I'm sure many of us have had times in our life when life's gone smoothly and swimmingly and we're still very grateful to God and it's all very wonderful, but we do get a bit neglectful until something goes wrong and suddenly we're forced to turn back to God and put our trust in him and him alone. So there's quite a bit in this book saying, don't forget the past, but also be ready and be careful for the future because there is a great danger that materialism and comfort could help you to forget this one God who has saved you and called you to serve him. And so you'll find quite a few passages here as well that remind them of the importance of God alone uh, being at the centre of their lives. One of the most famous and well-known passages is actually in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses reminds them of the most fundamental thing in a passage that still to this day, Jews call the Shema. Shema is the word for hear, because the passage begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then it goes on to say, these commandments I give you, you're to impress on your children, Talk about them at home, nail them to your doorpost, bind them to your heart and your forehead. Keep God at the center. 
And that would be the one thing that as the story unfolds, we will see they were tempted not to do. So don't forget God. Remember the past. Keep him central as you move into the future and keep him at the centre of all that you are and do. Just a quick question, which is a little side issue, but an important one. Who actually has written the book of Deuteronomy? Indeed, the books that have preceded it as well. Well, uh, scholars have different views about that. So the traditional classic Christian view and the traditional Jewish view was that the bulk of these books was written by Moses himself. Clearly, who was around to see what happened in Genesis 1 and 2? Nobody. That could only come by revelation from God. But the traditional view is that this came by a mixture of revelation, but also by records, family records. And do remember in those days that a lot of records weren't always written down, but they were passed on by word of mouth. Now, I know we arrogantly think in the West that anything passed on by word of mouth must have got changed 5,000 times. But in a culture where you don't write things down, where you don't have a computer or a cloud in the sky to keep all your stuff on, there's only one way you can pass on knowledge, and that is by word of mouth and by remembering and reciting again and again and again. So clearly those stories from the time of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would have been passed on down the generation. And the traditional view is that then Moses gathers all these up Plus the story that he tells of coming out of Egypt. No one would know that story better than him. Mm. Plus the laws that God had given that we are told in the book, he commanded Moses to write down in the book of the covenant, that all these were gathered up by Moses. Clearly the last bit where he dies wasn't written by him, but someone else added it. Now, it's clear that although all that material dates back to the earliest of times, and that's reflected even in things like the little details of knowing what life was like in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, things that have since long been affirmed by archaeological discoveries and so on, that there is nevertheless a shaping to these books, and particularly to this book of Deuteronomy. I've just said it's in the format of a covenant document. And so most scholars today would think that even though the bulk of this material came from first oral, then written traditions, Moses shaped it, that it probably took a final reshaping in the form that we have it today, probably during the exile of Israel, a phase in Israel's history much later that we'll come to in later episodes, where the thing was given its final shape. This doesn't undermine it as God's word one iota. It's simply a little bit about the mechanism that God used to give us his word in the final shape that we have it today. And the reason that we think that might be the case is there is so much in Deuteronomy that is repeated in some of the history books that will follow, that take us into the promised land, where the basic principle of Deuteronomy is repeated again and again, that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to curse. 
So I think it goes right back to some of these original figures with it being passed on by word of mouth originally, accurately, written down, collated by Moses, then probably given a final shaping to the way that we have it today. And key to it, as you say, is a number of reminders, including a reminder of the the Ten Commandments, for example. Yeah, that's right. You can't get more fundamental than that, can you? I mean, most of us perhaps are familiar with finding the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but we find them in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well. The same Ten Commandments repeated there. It's like there are some things you can't tell enough. Ask any parent, they will know that saying to their little children, say thank you, is the one sure way of getting them to do it. Tell it and tell it again. And that's exactly what we get here, a telling of the Ten Commandments again. Interesting that in the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments, Moses adds, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. It's almost as like these 10 words, as they are called in Hebrew, were really enough. And everything else really, well, it was just an unpacking. It it was just an unpacking of these 10 wise words for life that come from the heart of Father for his people that Moses now reminds God's people of as fundamental before they move into the promised land. And yes, some of those will be now unpacked and applied for life there. We talk about Ten Commandments as if there were only ten. They're the core Ten Commandments, without a doubt. But as I said, these ten are then unpacked and applied. According to traditional rabbinic Jewish thinking, you know, there was one for each day of the year as they were unpacked, although they seem to add a lot more as well. So they're the, they're the core, they're the heart of it. And do you know what? If we were to live, all of us, even in our country today, by the Ten Commandments, we would have an amazing culture and an amazing society. So there are ten, but the others that come after it, I think we should see as unpacking, explaining, applying. And certainly Deuteronomy In fact, that's a good word. It's an application of those commandments for life as it's going to be lived in the promised land. You think those Ten Commandments are still relevant for us today? These Ten Commandments are part of God's word to Israel. They are part of the covenant with Israel that you and I and any other Christian is not part of. But there is something about these Ten Commandments that is just so fundamental to, how can I put it, decent living that means that I think they are applicable in any and every situation. Do you know what? Let me just throw this one thing in as it just flashes through my mind. It is easy to see these Ten Commandments as Ten Commandments. Or, you know, the minute you have the word commandment, it feels heavy, doesn't it? Mm. But actually, in both the version in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, both versions begin with exactly the same words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, they both start by reminding us of the gracious God who comes to us to save us. 
In fact, in Hebrew tradition, that is actually the first commandment. It doesn't sound like a commandment, but if you were to ask a Jew today, what is the first commandment? They would say to you, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's how much this is fundamental. So yes, these are in inverted commas commandments. Though remember we said in another episode that actually the Hebrew word that's used here is 10 words Mm. rather than 10 commandments. But the fact that it's preceded by this gracious act of God, never forget who I am and what I've done for you. Now listen, live like this. So it's suddenly not so much commandment with a wagging finger as appeal from a loving father who's saying, when you live like this, life will go well with you. And so I think it still has loads of relevance for today. And if our society were to live by it, it would be incredibly transformed. Now, all the guidance for living has been for this traveling people. They've been traveling through the wilderness and they're about to move into the promised land, to settle in the promised land. Do they need some new guidance in that context? Yes. So some of the laws that follow here will be pretty much repeats of what we've seen in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers. Um, But there are some that, on the one hand, apply those laws for life. Uh, I mean, even things like when you build a house, put a parapet around its roof. Why? Because you don't want people to fall off. Isn't that kind of God to think of things like that? But we get other slightly more significant things. So, for example, one of the things we find in chapter 12 is uh, a whole chapter about what's called the one place of worship. When you go into the promised land, come to the place that the Lord your God shall choose, is the wording, to bring your offerings and your sacrifices to him. Now, why would that be so important? Well, because... Canaan wasn't really one nation. It was a a conglomerate of nations and of city-states and of people groups and of ethnic groups. And as such, they had a whole number of gods, various Baals. They had a whole number of places of sacrifice and worship. And what God and Moses want to ensure is that Israel doesn't get distracted and led astray by going to the local sanctuary and thinking, oh, this is to, in inverted commas, God. I can offer my sacrifice there. And Moses is saying here, no, I don't want you to be led astray by these other gods, frankly, these false gods. So when you get into the promised land, God will show you the one place where he wants you to come with your sacrifices. Doesn't mean you can't pray or offer him a a thanksgiving anywhere, of course, but there'll be one place. And so Moses makes clear in chapter 12 of this one place to ensure that they don't start going to all these other local shrines, to other local gods, confusing their gods and the one true living God. Now, we're not told where that place will be. We're just told the place that the Lord your God shall choose. And it won't be until we get to the time of King David that we'll find where that place is. 
in a city that at the time was known as Jebus, that will become renamed as Jerusalem, and where the temple will be built by David's son, Solomon. So there are specifics like that that will be done specifically for life in the future in the promised land. Some of the other specifics will be, for example, in chapter 30. There are warnings about future prosperity. Be careful when you go into the land. Take care that your materialism doesn't steal your heart from the living God. Many of the other laws are in many ways repeats of some of the laws that we have seen. Uh, So there are laws about the cancelling of debts that we've looked at before and the restoring of land. There there are uh, laws about festivals and guidelines for priests. Oh, and for prophets, by the way, as well. In chapter 18, there's a, a really good section there that can still be relevant for today about how do you know whether a prophecy really is from God or not. And, and, and Moses says, well, I'll, I'll give you some guidelines. So the end of chapter 18 is definitely worth looking at for that, where he basically says, listen, there are three types of prophecy, true, false, and just wrong, <laughs> which I find really reassuring. Common sense advice. Well, exactly. And it's still a piece of advice that's well worth listening to today. So the people, of course, are still not in the promised land. And you'd revealed previously that Moses, their leader, wasn't going to be able to enter the promised land either. So how does the the transfer to his successor happen? Well, in chapter 31, as we get towards the end of this, so we've had all our bits about the laws, chapter 31, it's made very clear that Moses is telling them that God's choice, not his choice, but God's choice for his successor is to be Joshua. I think that's probably been pretty clear. He's been the guy who's hanging around Moses all these years. And so in chapter 31, he makes clear that Joshua is to succeed him and and gives him words of encouragement. Be strong and courageous. You must be the one who's going to take these people into the land. God will be with you. So lots of encouragement to Joshua at that point, who will take over from him. And it's important for the people to understand that transfer as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think it must be, it must be incredible if the only leader you've known for the past 40 years has been this guy who, by the the way now, is, is 120 years old. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert of Midian, 40 years leading people, God's through the wilderness. So he's an old guy by this stage. But he's the only person you've ever known. You've never known another leader. And I think the impact of that, oh, Moses, no, you know, you've been the one who's prayed to God. You've been the one who's gone up the mountain. You've given us the law. You've been the one who's settled our disputes when things have gone wrong. And you're not going to be with us? I mean, it must have been really quite traumatic at one level. So I think it was really important for them that this man made clear that Joshua was the one that not only he but God himself had appointed to lead the people because he wouldn't be there with them. A useful parallel perhaps with today's situation in churches in terms of church leadership. 
Yes, uh, very much so. I think um, I can think over the years where there have been times when leaders have not made clear. Again, it depends on your setup. It may not be you decide. It might be a bishop or whoever, but where you are in a situation where you can have some influence. I think the worst thing a pastor can do is either to hang around and influence behind the scenes or not to make clear what you see the future be being and that leaving it open to groups or factions fighting between themselves. But what's clear here is everybody knows this. It's not a democracy. They've not all made a vote. But I tell you what, it's as plain as the nose on your face. Why? Because they've seen this guy at work. They've seen Joshua as one of those 12 spies who went into the, the land. They've seen his godliness hanging around the tabernacle. They've seen his courage. They've seen how he's learned from Moses. And it is as clear as the nose on your face that this is indeed the man that God wants to take over. But I still think it was great that Moses made that unmistakably clear. And in these sort of closing chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is recording as, as singing as well. Yes, we're not told what his voice was like, you know. We all all we get is the words, but we we have in chapter 32 a song, a sort of prophetic song given by the Holy Spirit that he sings over Israel. It's like his song of blessing. And do you know wherever I don't know if you've ever heard like people singing out songs of blessing, one of the most powerful songs that actually swept around the world during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic was the singing of the Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And this went around the world in various versions and the power of that blessing sung over you. I remember the first time I heard it, shivers went up and down my spine as this blessing from God's word was sung. And that's what we get in chapter 32. He sings a song of blessing. And then in chapter 33, he actually blesses uh, the individual tribes, pronounces a blessing over them. Before we get to chapter 34, the end of the book, which is his death, where God says, come on, boy, it's time for you to come home and, and calls him uh, up Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab. From there, lets him look out out to the promised land. I've been in that part of the world and from high up you can see for miles around. And I don't know what Moses thought at that point when he thought, ah, so close. But he didn't make it. Why didn't he make it? Well, remember we saw in the book of Numbers because he had allowed his anger to get the better of himself with God's people. And God had said, I can't have an angry leader. But he's still done well. He's still done amazingly well. And now here in chapter 34, we find God taking him home. The story tells us that he takes him up, he lets him see it and all it says in chapter 34, verse 5, is that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said, and God buried him in Moab. And to this day, no one knows where his grave is. I suspect what God wanted to ensure there was that there was no shrine to Moses, that this did not become 
a focal point, a place of worship after he had been such a significant man. And so he goes up, he dies, God buries him. How? I don't know. Did the finger of God come from heaven and scrape a grave or was there a landslide that fell down and the rocks over him? We don't know and no one knows. But at the age of 120, he dies a good death. And it tells us that the Israelites grieved for 30 days, his passing. But then Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the Israelites listened to him. And the book ends with a sort of PS almost, you know, since Moses, no prophets ever arisen in Israel like him whom the Lord knew face to face, did all those miracles and wonders. No one's ever been like him. And no one's ever performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The very last word of this book is about Israel. It's not about a man, never is a man or a woman. All we are at best are there to serve God's purposes for a season. It is about his people and the purpose he is planning for the whole earth through his people. And that's the note that Deuteronomy ends on and leaves us ready for the next exciting stage in the story. Why would you recommend reading Deuteronomy? I think it's a great book. Well, first of all, it's a great summary of some of the previous books. So if you don't want to read those, the first three chapters will give you the history so far. Uh, and we find that quite a bit in the Old Testament. So it's good for that, if nothing else. I think it's a great book to read because it's rich with God. The mercy, the grace of God, the God who brought you out of Egypt before giving you any commandments. There's this call to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. So God is at the centre, but a kind and gracious God who gives us rules to live by. And the challenge of the book is really a challenge to, well, will you obey this God? Because whenever you will, I can guarantee you, the book says, there will be blessing. But whenever you don't, I can guarantee you, it will not go well with you. And you know what? I think that's still pretty good and wise advice for us as Christians today. Do what God says. And even if it's tough on the way, it will always turn out good. It will always turn out right. So you really can trust him, I think, is the message that comes out through Deuteronomy. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.